always a mammy, never the mom, or so it felt under the jaundiced eyes of white strangers. On this episode of Hear Tell, a black mother whose daughter appears white challenges the assumptions of the white gaze about features and skin tone and who belongs where. My body nourished another life. This joy can only be measured by the pleasure of a heart so taut it has no choice but to burst. My name is Andre Gallant, and I'm the host of Hear Tell, a show about true stories and how they get told. The show is a project of the Low Residency MFA and Narrative Nonfiction Program, housed in the Grady College of Journalism at the University of Georgia. My guest today is Jasmine Pittman Morell, a 2020 graduate of the MFA program. She lives in Asheville, North Carolina, where she works as a freelance editor and as co-editor of The Porch magazine. She's also a featured essayist alongside Keisha Lance Bottoms, Regina Bradley, and Imani Perry in the book Meeting at the Table, African-American Women Write on Race, Culture, and Community, out now from Down South Press. She's going to read an essay called Is That Your Mother?, originally published by The Bitter Southerner in the fall of 2020. In the essay, Jasmine explores her own family history and the stories of enslaved women who raised children on the plantations of North Carolina. She shows how the legacy of white supremacy continues to treat black motherhood like a commodity and how, in response to hurtful assumptions, she cherishes the fullness of her experience. We burrowed at home, mapping the geography of each other's bodies, the peaches of her cheeks, the now rippled river of my belly, the knobs of her toes, the bulb of my breast. In an interview following her reading, Jasmine talks with me about the power of choice, both in life and on the page. And we talk about the challenge and opportunity presented by parenting as writers during a pandemic. The essay you're going to read connects your motherhood to the history of slavery in this country, which is etched into black bodies to paraphrase your words. And that's, that's especially true of, of black mothers in physical and psychological ways. In what ways does the past and legacy speak to you daily? when you're caring for your family or, or doing the work of a writer? I really loved or love this question because it feels like an opportunity for me to step into gratitude. Um, I don't take my ability to do the work of mothering or the work of writing for granted. Um, choice is such a vital aspect of freedom and liberation 
from bondage. And so um, the idea that I'm able to choose to have a family and to nurture them um, and choose to write is something that my ancestors, you know, didn't necessarily have the opportunity to do. Um, and so it just deepens my everyday experience of those things. And I find the more that I appreciate them, um, even with the challenges of both, <laughs> which they can both be extremely challenging, but um, the more I can appreciate them and live in gratitude that my ancestors brought me to this place, uh, the more it ends up giving back to me. You've been on this show before reading a, a shorter work of writing that traced uh, a lineage of all the mothers in your family um, that came before you, that made you who you were. And uh, I encourage uh, everyone listening to go back and, 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 and hear that episode. Describe for me how that work you were doing in that piece looking at the women who came before you connects with the themes of this essay? Hmm. Um, I, I think that, that that short piece really began when I was so curious around um, the fact that two of my, well, my grandmother and my great-grandmother, both of their names were queens. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> For one thing, I like to claim that for myself as a reminder. But then um, as I started realizing that they were both born in and around Charlotte, the Queen City, I I was just, I got interested in the context. I live in North Carolina, but I don't, I didn't know really the history of how um, Charlotte became such a big city, how Charlotte became Charlotte. And so um, weaving that piece into the story and then that curiosity around my grandmother's names um, um really being able to actually name the lineage of my mother's just felt very important to be able to put those names to this idea that i had around um historical motherhood parenting i think is storytelling on a on a very intimate human scale <laughs> using a, a, a very difficult collaborative method. Um, how has parenting affected how you tell stories on the page? I definitely think that it's made me comfortable with interruptions. Um, <laughs> I don't often get the chance to sit down for a really long period of time and just work and so in that, um, I can go back to a piece with fresh eyes almost every time, like I get interrupted, but then there's this newness that I can come to it with, um, that I think it's maybe a, it can be an irritating part of parenthood, but then that's also been a great gift to my writing, I think. Maybe we'll discuss these themes uh, a little bit later after you read, but in the essay you write about blackness and skin color as both blessing and burden and what that means for the past, uh, your present, and your daughter's present and future. How does writing about these burdens and blessings affect 
the kind of power that they have in your life? I think that it allows me to deepen my own experience of my own humanity um, in a venue where, if you want to call reading the reading world a venue, but in a place where I've often been rendered kind of invisible and not kind of, but invisible. Um, and so I, I think that blackness is, is only a burden when it's considered um, underneath the, the gaze of white supremacy. Because, I mean, other than that, I love the idea that KSA Lehman has about Black abundance, you know. I just feel like I've been given so many amazing gifts. And so um, getting to write about them, um, you know, sometimes there is a huge burden and feeling as though I have to explain or um, um, validate my own humanity. And yet it's like my life's work, I think, <laughs> my life's calling to um, hold people accountable to be, to, sorry, hold on, <laughs> to hold, um, hold a white gaze accountable. Um, it's like the most important thing or one of the most important things I think I can do with my writing. And now here's Jasmine Pittman Morell reading. Is that your mother? The few hours I spent in labor with my first daughter were short and urgent. The contraction surged through my body at a rate much quicker than expected, and my husband and I almost didn't make it to Rex Hospital, which was just down the street from our first apartment in Raleigh, North Carolina. As soon as we arrived in the hospital breezeway, a nurse took my hands, told me to breathe, and above all, do not push. I will always remember her wide open eyes, short curly hair and the pale, lined skin of her face. She reminded me of an old friend's mother. This calmed me long enough to get us into the labor and delivery room and me into the hospital bed. Only a few minutes passed. My doctor hadn't arrived and the nurse was still putting on gloves when Jubilee made her entrance into the world. She waits for no one, I thought. When the nurse placed my daughter on my chest, I marveled at the way her movements were already known to me. I'd felt her internally for months, and in this way had already grown to know her. Her skin was the color of toasted coconut, and the mass of loose, slick curls a dark brown. When I kissed her perfect bow of a mouth, she smelled like my blood, and I couldn't believe how intoxicating this was. Hours later, as visitors streamed through my hospital room, most of them exclaimed how much she looked like my husband, Michael. My ego was bruised. I saw my round nose and full lips. 
I saw my mother when she was a child. And I saw my mother's father, my granddad too. But her creamy skin, the coveted white girl's tan, blanketed any of her other features that might have identified her as mine. In a quiet moment, when it was just Jubilee and me in the room, a nurse with skin like mahogany came in to check my vital signs. You're lucky Dad's here, she said. Did I hear resentment in her voice? Why wouldn't my husband be here? I countered, confused. She stared at me, hands frozen in midair. I wasn't sure if she was embarrassed by her assumption or, like a prophet, showing me a small piece of the way before me. Suddenly, I understood. She was unused to seeing white fathers claim the children they created with black mothers, or claim the mothers at all. In 1967, Loving versus Virginia nullified existing laws prohibiting interracial marriage. Only 40 years had passed since the Supreme Court officially legitimized relationships like the one between Michael and me, offering the children birthed from this intimate connection a place to exist inside America's psychic landscape. Forty years wasn't long enough to erase the sustaining legacy of plantation masters and slave drivers raping enslaved African women and turning a blind eye to the results. The nurse and I didn't speak again, and she finished her tasks, leaving the room silently. Later that evening, a different nurse burst into the room, rousing me from a haze of exhaustion. A swaddled, content jubilee slept in my arms. Put the baby down in the bassinet if you're going to sleep, she chastised me. I'm not asleep. I frowned and held her closer. There would be more moments in the future when it seemed white women would continue to ask me to put her down. It seemed as if they pleaded with me to mollify the primal anxiety raised in them seeing a woman like me nurturing a child that on first glance appeared to be one of them. Had part of me wanted it this way, my genes, combined with her father's, gave her the gift of fair skin. The gift. It rankled me at the serrated truth of the phrase that lodged in my throat. Her skin tone and even the corkscrew pattern of her curls would make her life in this country easier than mine had been, even if I also shared, albeit darker than Jubilee's, rape-colored skin. History reminded me of it in the form of paper bag tests and the supposed privilege of Sally Hemings. And so did my neighbor, a retired diminutive Asian gentleman who always waved energetically when we found ourselves outside our homes at the same time. Beautiful baby, he exclaimed. She is a good mix. She will be healthy, strong. If I had asked more about his cultural background, I might have known which Asian country he'd immigrated from and understood what shaped his opinion. But in the haze of early motherhood, I merely smiled and thanked him, agreeing that yes, Jubilee was a beautiful baby. Bright and high as the sun, she was the adored first. 
first grandchild on both sides, first child born amongst our group of close-knit friends, first to make me a mother. We burrowed at home, mapping the geography of each other's bodies, the peaches of her cheeks, the now rippled river of my belly, the knobs of her toes, the bulb of my breast. Feeding her didn't come easily at first. Before motherhood, no one tells you breastfeeding isn't always as simple as it might appear. It's a relationship to nurture and a skill to tune. We clumsily folded ourselves into different positions, the traditional cradle hold, a football hold, or a side lying in bed. Nothing felt instinctual about trying to support the tender nape of her neck and head with one hand, cut my own breast in another, and hold her body close to mine, all in perfect alignment. We were a tangle of awkward limbs, a mess of tears. The shame of being unable to perform this one essential task threatened to overwhelm me. Then, one humid afternoon when Jubilee was three weeks old, I sat on the couch, holding her stretched out in my lap. Michael had left to run errands, so we were alone together. I sat spent and unwound by the heat. I stared down at her. Listen, little bear, I said. It's time. She stared back, trusting. With hands grown confident, I pulled her close. She nestled into me, and after a few moments, relief melted me like butter. I could feed my baby. Hunger served as our compass, pointing us back home whenever we strayed. We ventured out for groceries, or the occasional playdate with other mothers from my birth class, or winding strolls throughout the neighborhood under a canopy of tree-lined streets. Seasons changed, and Jubilee grew into a spirited toddler. Our quiet, private sphere of life became more public. The world expanded to romping through Raleigh's parks and between library bookshelves. One afternoon, in an uptown library, we stood at the checkout desk while the librarian scanned Jubilee's prized stories so that we could bring them home. It looks like she has a small fine for an overdue book, the librarian mentioned, glancing up at me from over the rim of her glasses. I dug through my purse for some change, but she waved at me to stop. Don't worry about it. The nannies don't have to pay the fines. I'm not the nanny, I said, my face warm. I'm her mother. I'll pay our fine. I dropped a few quarters on the counter, letting them bounce and scatter. With shaking hands, the librarian completed our transaction, refusing to meet my eyes. A cooling satisfaction washed over me but quickly evaporated. Driving home, I replayed the moment in my head, wondering what picture Jubilee and I had painted for the librarian. A young black woman in a t-shirt and leggings, a running errands uniform. Her hair pulled into a messy ponytail on top of her head. Standing beside the woman, a pearly child outfitted in a ruffled dress, complete with a big bow in her ringlets, which were tinted honey brown from the summer sun. Jubilee belonged in the image of Raleigh's wealthy, white-collar families, her place central and infallible. Apparently, I belonged too, 
but only if I stood outside of the frame. Always a mammy, never the mom. Or so it felt under the jaundiced eyes of white strangers. But black women, with skin spanning the spectrum of glorious brown hues, have never once assumed I was anything other than my daughter's mother. We know well the varieties of skin tones, facial features, and hair textures that can make our children shine. She got the good hair, didn't she? Was my most often heard comment about Jubilee. Perhaps we've developed a discerning eye because we are eager to claim our own. It's a desire born out of an old, cavernous ache. My ancestral mothers had children torn away from them. A boy, James, because he was allegedly the master's son. Looking at his picture, I wonder how anyone could refute his mixed parentage. James' portrait depicts him slightly frowning his face a pool of alabaster longing. And the daughter, Housey, sent to an auction block in Richmond, Virginia, for reasons unknown. Those stories are undocumented, and I can't hear them in the mother's own words. Hungry to know the memories of enslaved mothers from my home state, I turn to the North Carolina slave narratives collected in the Library of Congress. From 1936 to 1938, the Federal Writers Project sent out-of-work writers across the country to interview formerly enslaved people as a part of the Works Progress Administration, which was later renamed the Work Projects Administration in 1939. Many who'd lived that long were children when the Union soldiers, otherwise known as Sherman's Army, came tearing through plantations declaring their freedom. The mother's voices remain elusive, except when heard through the voices of their children. On a late spring day in 1937, off South Person Street in Raleigh, Martha Allen describes her mother's life in Craven County just off North Carolina's coast. Going without her own breakfast, Allen's mother left her babies in the kitchen with a cook. The cook along with preparing food for the master's house, nursed the babies while Alan's mother worked the fields. Cornelia Andrews was interviewed in Smithfield, North Carolina, the same town where she'd been enslaved. She remembered the whipping post. Her back and shoulders, the interviewer observed, were as though branded with a plated cowhide whip. Whether by choice or necessity, If Andrews remained in Smithfield for her entire life, it would take a resilient soul to live with the town's history etched in her body. Her body remembered the slave market, watching tearless mothers sold away from their babies, babies someone else would have to feed. When she was 80 years old, Sarah Louise Augustus was interviewed in Raleigh. Born on a plantation in Fayetteville, North Carolina, Augustus grew up learning to respect herself. Her grandmother, and possibly her namesake, Sarah MacDonald, was a spry and enterprising woman. 
She grew hops and herbs to help alleviate the pain of rheumatism and traveled as a healer to nurse those in need. MacDonald bore 15 children of her own, held them to her breasts, and nursed them all, as well as all of the plantation master's children. The record doesn't tell us whether or not some of MacDonald's children belonged to her enslaver, but I wonder how she navigated the complexity of her relationships with each of those children. Did she stare into their eyes as they nursed? Did she marvel over their perfection? Did some call her mama? And did others grow up and learn to ignore her? Regardless, it sounds as though MacDonald became indispensable. Mothering was, and is to this day, a valuable commodity. When a white librarian sees my labor only as commodity, she misses the fullness of what is. My body nourished another life. This joy can only be measured by the pleasure of a heart so taut it has no choice but to burst. When I was around 12 years old, one of my best friend's parents were different colors. Her dad reminded me of my own. He was tall and barrel-chested, occasionally goofy, and teddy bear brown. Her mother was Scandinavian, an icy blonde with round cheeks and a kind smile. Both of her parents were artists. Instruments and paint supplies scattered their home so unlike my own, and I loved basking in it. Somehow, I intuited from my parents that my friend's parents only fit together because, well, they're artists. And artists were granted all kinds of privileges to step outside the rules. A small seed of something like rebellion was born in me. I'd like to claim the quiet tenacity of Mildred Loving, the woman who inspired the 1967 decision to overturn anti-miscegenation laws in the U.S. It doesn't seem as though she intended to become an activist, but like so many other Black folks, she'd grown weary of the way the state, upheld and supported by her white neighbors, tried to erase her and the simple truth of the intimacy between Mildred and her husband, Richard. Their children were the product of consent, not domination. Rape might be present in my legacy, but so is the energy of boundless love. If I'm able to embody this and pass it down through the generations, perhaps the wounds of the past will begin to heal. Now, Jubilee stands as tall and slender as a sapling, She needs to bend, a slight curl of her back, when she wants to find the circle of my arms. Now, she can answer for herself when someone asks, Is that your mother? In those moments, her skin isn't a gift as much as it is a burden. The burden of explanation. The burden of wiping the lens of perception clean. The burden of bearing the mirror. By grounding her in our family's legacy of love, we're giving her what she needs to face the questions asked of her. 
to make peace where she needs to and war if she has to. Thank you, Jasmine, for sharing your writing with us. Thanks for listening. You've described writing as being part of your life's work. So how did you uh, come to consider the act of writing so highly? Well, um, I guess to answer that question, I'd have to take you back to a third grade classroom. (laughs) where I really think that I fell in love with reading. Um, It was the reading that brought me to writing. I remember the very first, like what felt like a big kid book that I got to read was Harriet the Spy. Um, And after I read that, I thought, oh, I want to write a story like this. And my teacher, she just encouraged the heck out of me. And really ever since then, um, I've taken a winding route, but that's what I've been pursuing. (laughs) There's a a really effective structure to this essay um, that starts with um, the birth of your, your oldest daughter, Jubilee, and ending with her coming into an early sense of herself. Walk me through how you plotted this essay. Well, I I have to first say that I wish I were a writer that um, was able to sort of sit down, plot out the story, and then, you know, deliver. <laughs> That's not quite often how it happens. Um, but this essay unfolded, it just started as a response, a simple, I wanted to share that experience that I had with Jubilee in the library. Um, and then as I started thinking about it and wondering like what in the world did that librarian see? And, you know, she wasn't alone. It was like, she's not the only one that had asked me the question, are you her mother? Are you the nanny? Um, So I knew I wanted to layer in some historical context and um, the lovings, just to mention the loving seemed very appropriate. And then also I, I love digging around through the library of Congress. So I really I didn't know what I was looking for at first um, and then realized that I really wanted to hear the enslaved mother's voices if I could and to see what connections I could make there. Um, so starting with Jubilee's birth, it, it, I think I did that because, you know, birth and death, they're both such urgent um, primary human experiences that um, that just seemed like the most appropriate place to start. And then um, ending with her now and her own ability to answer that question, it was sort of like a, I'm not passing the baton to her yet totally because I have her back and if she needs help, you know, answering those questions and with support, then I'll do that. But, you know, she's coming into her own. And so it did feel good to just to kind of to end it there. Um, I toyed around with, maybe switching the the beginning and ending and beginning with her as a teenager. 
Um, but that took the story in a different place. And um, so in the end, the birth and then her as a teenager just seemed right. I'd love for you to talk about your relationship with individual words and how you apply the craft of choice, um, the writerly decision-making process. Uh, there were a number of beautiful examples I'd like to point out, but one pairing in particular hit me. And that was the connection at two different parts of the essay with uh, or between burrowing and cavernous, which prompted me to ask about how you approach playing with words. Well, for one, I have to point back to reading again. Like I uh, read and listen to a lot of poetry. And I just think that that helps inform my voice and um, helps me think of ways to use words, you know, that are unexpected. This poetry is so good at that. Um, and so that helps. And, and, and I think, too, when I'm writing, um, I want to try to keep in mind uh, words that are going to be evocative of the feeling or whatever image that I think is going to be strong and really stand out in readers' minds. So the thesaurus is my friend. <laughs> and so is the Oxford English Dictionary. I, I love the etymology of words. And if I can create a word or use a word in an unexpected way or create a phrase that just really like evokes the, the sensation that I feel in my body when I'm writing, um, then I, I'm like, yeah, that feels good. Um, and in the case of burrowing and cavernous, I I didn't even realize I had kind of that those words were connected um, until you brought it up just now. Like, you know, burrowing to me feels like very animal, um, very kind of primal, and something that animals do and that we do when we're when we're trying to nurture through like sleep or uh, you know hibernation and eating and then cavernous is sort of the opposite of that an emptying or a, like a digging up um and so gosh in that way like I wasn't conscious of it but it's amazing that the way a story can kind of take on an intelligence of its own you know <laughs> do you uh practice uh layering with your sentences in terms of um uh, the drafts uh, that you that you write, you know, sentence by sentence. Do you go back and 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 twist a a word at a time until um, the feeling and meaning of a sentence changes? Yeah, that's usually. I mean, my first drafts of stuff are just like very simple. It's like a second grader could have written it. I mean, you know, sometimes it feels that way. Um, but sure, yes, I. I could take a sentence and just write it simply and then look at it. And again, look for those ways in which it's going to point to the sensation or the feeling or the image in a maybe more truthful way than, than I started out. Related to uh, my earlier question about uh, word choice. Um, there are 
two words used in the piece, and they're often used in discussions when we talk about people, um, especially uh, black women and the violence that white supremacy commits against them. And the first word is resiliency, as in the resiliency to endure brutality and survive it. Um, which, you know, as a concept, I, I, I like, but resiliency, especially in this case, feels like a word that allies might use incorrectly to shine a light on abuse, but not the abuser of and the other word uh, is agency, which to me is like a synonym for flexing power. Certainly when uh, power is attempted uh, at being taken from you. Um, and both of those words show up in your essay. Um, so I'd love to get your thoughts on what life you give those words and what they mean to you those are good points and i think that um again i can look at resiliency as a gift but you're right it's sort of like without the abuse then i wouldn't need to be handed this gift <laughs> and yet um i think it can point me to self-care which you know audrey lord talks about as an act of political warfare is that the phrase i can't remember now but um i remember that i don't have to be resilient like i i enjoy the fact that i am strong and yet i don't have to be and reminding myself of that um is really valuable and then agency too i i love the fact that I've got choices laid out for me and um, it does feel powerful in a way that, again, I, I just think that agency, agency speaks to the power of my ability to choose and I have to hold that in gratitude. I, I'd like to go back to talking about, you know, this idea of life's work and, and ask you, how you see that life's work developing or what are you building as a writer? I would love to think that I'm building a legacy of increased visibility. Um, and so I love to look at places that are maybe like stereotypically whitewashed in the American landscapes, like Oklahoma, which is where I have some family, um, and then also, you know, I live in Southern Appalachia, and that's people generally consider that to be a very, very white area. And so, um, digging out these stories, um, they're either family stories or maybe what I could consider like a larger sense of family in terms of um, just Black folk that have come through these mountains, and then the indigenous stories of the mountains and um, in Oklahoma too, as well. That um, that has been so wonderful and life-giving for me to explore. We shared a, a phone call a few months back, um, and we kind of talked about the um, 
the struggles of being a a writer and a uh, an employee and a uh, volunteer and whatnot, as well as being uh, a parent with children at home during a pandemic, and how so much of the writing advice that uh, is doled out in uh, newsletters and in Twitter threads is. Um, clearly not written by people who have uh, small humans vying for their attention. Um, so I wanted to, uh, you know, talk to you about, again, you know, the kind of uh, the balance of being a writer and a parent and how you consider um, the wants and the needs and the duties of your life. Um, and, and I don't mean to say this is that, you know, a lot of writing advice is that, you know, um, it's that you just have to shut out the world to get your work done. And that's really just not how I feel. And maybe that means I won't be as successful as another writer might be, but, um, I am, you know, just as fulfilled, uh, being present, uh, you know, with my, uh, with my family as I am being present on the page. And I don't see them as in competition with each other, but it, it does mean that I, you know, sometimes don't get more than a sentence out in a week. Um, so I'd just love to hear you uh, describe what that balance looks like in your life and, and what your goals are as you, um, as you weigh these things. Yeah. <laughs> these days, um, I'm feeling good if I just get a few words down on paper and they don't have to look beautiful or they don't have to be structured, but as long as I'm still kind of flexing that muscle, I know that I can come back to it when I have some more time. Um, Cause really the, the family piece, the family piece of it and giving myself to my family, that's what's really important to me. And I think that I would look back and like, I would regret probably if I were to spend or at least attempt to spend most of my days kind of looking away from them and in front of the page or in front of the screen. Um, so I just kind of have to remind myself that uh, when parenting and writing, that there are seasons and there are seasons that I get to just like full on engage my work. And then there are other seasons where I might not be able to do that. And, and I think that they both inform like each season informs the next or feeds the next, I guess. So if I can keep my eye on the, the cyclical nature of it, then um, I don't, I won't fall into like the depths of despair. <laughs> Referring back to some of the things uh, you said when I asked about structure um, in the uh, the ending of the piece where you give us a sense of the story kind of walking on ahead of us, ahead of you, um, ahead of Jubilee. It's a, it's a future tense story in the end. Um, so I wonder... Where do you see 
um, this story going? Well, I hope it continues to do its work. And um, like I said, grounding her in a legacy of love that I hope that she can move into the world like with a firm foundation of that love um, and, and put her own stamp on, on healing, whatever that looks like. Or again, she could just be whatever she wants to be. I don't want to place this burden of um, having to heal the racial, the entire like Americans system on, on her. And yet, um, I think, I think she'll do her part just by being who she is and coming from where she comes from. And, and what about you? Hmm. How will I move forward? That is a good question. By continuing to write. <laughs> I want to thank again Jasmine Pittman Morrell for joining us on this episode of Hear Tell. This episode featured music by Chad Crouch and Big Mean Sound Machine. To learn more about this show and the Low Residency MFA and Narrative Nonfiction Program at the University of Georgia, visit bit.ly slash Podcast. Again, that's bit.ly slash Podcast. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We're at Podcast on all platforms. Hear Tell will be back soon with another true story. 